0: This morning, we, uh, you guys have heard Trevor share with us before. Trevor's a longtime friend of mine. Just to give you guys some context, uh, Trevor and I go back to like 2005, probably when I was running a skateboard ministry. And Trevor was on staff as a youth pastor at a church in Southern California. And our, their church would bring us in to do these skateboard uh, demonstrations every year. And so I got developed a relationship with Trevor and his wife, Julie. And, um, and then years later they would plant a church in Portland and, um, we were actively involved with them through that process and then the Lord brought them here. And so Trevor is just an amazing friend and a gifted communicator and I'm just blessed that he's going to share this morning. So
1: thank you. Trevor, thanks for being here. Hey, before you go, I, I love you. Um before he goes, can uh, can we just bless and honor uh, Chris and Heather and his family? Um, leading a church is, having having been able to do it, is uh, extremely challenging and it is a weight and a responsibility that is pretty unique to uh, a pastor. And there's a lot of staff in here that bear a lot of that weight alongside of him and, um, and volunteers as well. But there's a unique weight and pressure and stress um, uh, that is part of uh, being a pastor. So um, I just want to pray for Chris and for the family and on behalf uh, are you guys okay if I speak on behalf of you Um, thank you guys for all that you do for this community Thanks for the hours that none of us see, of the meetings, of praying, of walking with people, of the challenges and all the stressors that you do uh, faithfully um, every single day. We are incredibly blessed to have you as a pastor of this community. So can we pray for him and his family? Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for Chris and for Heather. and for his family and for all of the staff that are here serving um, this church and serving uh, this city. And God, we pray that you would uh, remind them in a really meaningful, deep way of how much you love them, of how much you care for them, of how pleased you are with them, and that you would fill them, God, with your spirit and rest and peace, especially during this time, that you would continue to give favor upon them and their families and the staff. You'd protect them from the enemy and from his uh, discouragement and schemes and everything that is going on in the spiritual realm that we don't see and I pray God that right now you would fill them with a joy and peace that uh, you deeply love them and that this community deeply loves them and so we thank you God so much for them and it's for your beautiful name we pray amen
0: thank you man thanks Trevor
1: Um, this is a great week and so I'm just going to
0: encourage us before I get off the stage what a blessing it is, the week that we're in, and what an awesome opportunity we have even with Christmas Eve services to invite friends and coworkers and family and, um, and neighbors uh, to experience the love of Jesus and to really understand the reason for the season. So anyway, I just want us to be encouraged as, as a church, though the world may feel like it's going to hell in a handbasket, we're a blessed people. Like, what an awesome season we get to partake in right now, so thanks. amen.
1: You just took my intro, thanks. Well, yeah. I saw it on your iPad. So. Yeah. I had even had the brightness down. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 11. Um, we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 11, specifically verses 28 through 30, um, as we talk for the second week of Advent. Um, I want to do something I don't normally do. Um, I'm going to give the conclusion up front. Um, this feels like showing the end of the movie before the movie even starts um, so um, maybe it'll work maybe it won't um, oh well um, what what has really struck me in reading Matthew chapter eleven uh, this week and studying it is jesus says it's a it's a passage most of you know as soon as I said Matthew eleven your mind might have already gone there um, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my, burden, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I kind of just hung on this fact when Jesus says, come to me. Now, we have to remember he's speaking to an actual group of people um, who can see him, touch him, smell him, and follow him. And so he's actually, he's inviting people to say, hey, cu- literally, come with me walk with me, learn from my teaching, learn about who I am and what I'm about, learn about the life that is offered to you, come with me, let's go eat, let's go um, be together, and here we are some 2,000 years uh, removed from that, and we, we don't have that same experience. And so, um, this idea uh, is a, it can be a little bit lost on us of, come to me all you who are weary. However, I do believe that Christianity is, is a full body experience. It's our minds, it's our hearts, it's our emotions, it's our bodies, it, it's holistic, it's everything. And so there is something powerful about when we respond physically to a call, to being asked to do something. And so what I'm, what I'm asking you is that as we go through this passage, that if you are in the category today of anxious, of stressed, of tired, of burdened, of heavy laden, that you would consider as we end today coming up as a step to say, Jesus, I want to come forward and receive your light yoke and your easy burden. And we've got carpets up here um, that you can come to. People will be here to pray for you. Um, But as we're going through this, I want you just to consider that because I don't know about you, but I come into this room Um, in a mixed bag. Um, It's a weird thing to preach on peace and then not have peace. Um, But I come into this room in a mixed bag where I can feel the stressors of this season, of this life, of things that are going on. And so I'm coming in uh, at the same spot of saying, Jesus, I want to come to you because I need your light and easy yoke and burden today. And so let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you so much for this time. And God, I do pray for all of us in this room. Um, Lord, you know exactly where each one of us are at. You know what we're feeling. You know what we're dealing with. uh, You know what we're experiencing. And I pray, God, for all of us in this room who are searching for peace and are searching for hope, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious, all of us are desperately looking for peace and hope and rest. And so, God, I pray today that as we continue this study, as after talking about hope, and as we come into this conversation about peace, that Jesus, you would please give us your peace, and that you would help us to become people of peace, a non-anxious presence in this world that desperately needs you. And that can only happen by your spirit. So, God, we ask that you'd come here, that you'd be with us right now, that you'd speak to us, and we need you. And it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Um, I would ask the question, but um, it, it, it doesn't even need to be asked in a day and time like this, but how many of you um, are feeling some measure of stress, anxiety, weight, burden, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Can I just show of hands, if, if you don't have your hand up, you should be up here and not me, but um, it's just the reality of the world we live in. It is a stressful existence that we live in, but it's one of the things that we know, um, kind of instinctually as humans, it's not supposed to be this way. Why is it like this? Why is everything painful? Why is so much of life stressful? Why is there such a weight and a burden to life? And all of us at various points have different experiences where they are highs, they're lows, they're in-betweens. We deal with things better and worse at various times. But the truth of the matter remains, we live in a world that is filled with pain, with stress, with anxiety, et cetera. And this time of season happens to bring out a lot more of it for a lot more people. Uh, whether it is coming into this season knowing that a loved one isn't going to be here and dealing with the grief and the stress and the hardship of that, whether it's uh, families where there are issues and fracture and having to come into that, whether there's money, whether all these things in this season make this time uniquely beautiful, but if we're honest, also uniquely stressful uh, and sometimes very anxious. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. But as we come into Advent— Advent is this time, it's an opportunity. It literally means a season of waiting or arrival to be able to stop, to be able to slow down, to be able to breathe, and to be able to reflect on this season. And so as we talk about peace, we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about Advent, and there's two verses that I'll reference that are, that are always associated with uh, Advent, that being Isaiah 9:6, 6 uh, when uh, Isaiah writes for us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then again, we read in Luke 2, verse 13, when he says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace be among those with whom he is pleased." So I want to talk about three ideas, get through it relatively quickly. I've got a timer on. Uh, We'll get through three ideas, and there's three points here. Number one, what's gone wrong? Number two, the secret of peace. And number three, the practices of peace. So number one, let's talk about what has gone wrong. We find ourselves in this situation of life that is filled with all of the stressors and anxieties I just referenced. But the question really is, why? And when we talk about Advent, we're talking about Jesus coming into earth on a mission to bring peace, shalom, salvation to us. And so the question is, why did he have to come? And in order to answer that question, we need to go all the way back. So uh, our belief as Christians, in terms of our origin story, in terms of why we're here, why we were created, believe that God created us. And when he created us, when he created Adam and Eve, the kind of framework that I like to think about this is he created Adam and Eve with these three specific characteristics, that Adam and Eve had peace with God, had peace with themselves, and had peace with the world. So we read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created them, he created them perfectly, and that they had peace with God. So imagine this, Adam and Eve walking with God physically, The Bible tells us they walked with God in the cool of the day. They could see him. They could touch him. They could talk to him. They could spend time with him. There was no doubts. There was no questions. There was no wondering if he's real. He was actually with them. So they got to walk with God. They had peace with God. They also had peace with themselves. We read in in Genesis that they were naked and without shame. And it's this idea of they had nothing to hide. They had no shame, they had no guilt, they had no insecurities, so they were at peace with themselves, they were at peace with uh, each other, and that they were at peace with God. And then we see that they had peace with the world. Um, They were naming the animals, not being eaten by the animals. There was no war, there was no famine, there was no pestilence, there was no violence, there was no racism, there was none of these things. The world cooperated with them. And so you start to picture this scene— They can see God, they can touch God, they can walk with God in the cool of the day. They're not dealing with shame, anxiety, insecurities, and the world is functioning the way that it should. And then we read that Satan, a liar, the liar and tempter, comes into the scene in Genesis chapter three, and he gives them an alternative message, an alternative gospel. And his message, in essence, is what God has set up for you, he's actually holding things back. There's things he doesn't want you to see and doesn't want you to touch, not for your good, but because he doesn't want to give up what he has, his glory. And so this whole thing about the tree and not eating the fruit off of it, that's all because God is trying to hide something for you. And I don't know what personality type you have. like that was me growing up. Kid, my family or my mom said, "Don't touch the fireplace. It's hot." I'm like, "No, don't buy that. You're trying to hide something really good for me." Uh, it turns out she's just hiding third-degree burns for me. Um, but that, that's the scene that's going on right there, is that Satan is telling them a lie, an alternative message, and unfortunately, they believe the message. And so what happens immediately? They go from peace with God, peace with themselves, and peace with the world, to brokenness with God, self, and the world. What's the first scene we see after, after the fall? Is There's a couple things that happen there pretty quickly. Number one, they realize that they're naked. And so now for the first time, shame has entered into the cosmos. Insecurity, questions, doubt. What's the other thing we see? is when they hear God's voice, when God says, Adam, where are you? And now, you know, it's hard to pick up tone all the time, but I I don't read that and think God was saying, Adam, where are you? But I hear in a way that he is saying, like a friend, Adam, where are you? And what happens? They're afraid of him, and so they go and run and hide. And so the pastor joke that I have to make is like your kids trying to play hide and go seek with you and their foot sticking out of the door or something and you're trying to say, where are you? And we know where they are. This is like the game. If you're trying to play hide and go seek with God, this is how that goes. And so they run and they hide from God. They realize they're naked. They realize that things are broken. And then everything else enters. Death enters and all of these other things. So we find them. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with themselves, broken relationship with the world. Sin enters in, death enters in, war enters in, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the scene we find ourselves, but the, the story of, of the scriptures that I think is so profound and has so much implications for us today, if you're Christian or not Christian, is the fact that God doesn't stop there. God actually comes back in. And says, I see what has happened, and I promise I'm going to fix it. He gets right down back into it with his people and says, I'm not going to leave you like this. I will fix this. And then the Old Testament is what we see. We see prophets. We see people telling about God coming. We see the law. We see Moses. We see all these things. But we continue to see this thread throughout the Old Testament that God says, I'm going to send someone who is going to fix this. I'm going to send someone who's going to make all of this right. The brokenness that you feel, the brokenness that you live in, the doubt, the despair, the depression, the sin, etc., etc., I am going to send someone to make this right. And that's when we enter into the Christmas story. But he doesn't, doesn't come in the way that you and I would expect it to come. Instead of it being this towering figure who is strong, who speaks well, who is articulate, who has all the degrees. It comes in the form of a baby born in a manger, surrounded by barn animals, in an unsuspecting place at an unsuspecting time. And it's this baby, Jesus, who says, I'm going to be the one to fix it. And then for three years, we see his life and his life is to give us a picture of what the life in the kingdom that he talks about is supposed to look like. And I think you, would, you might agree with me that Jesus lives a life of peace. Now, he's not devoid of human emotion, and he's not devoid of human experience. He gets angry, he gets sad, he cries, he, he has his own stressors in terms of when he's at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood, hoping for another way. He lives the full range of human emotions, but I think we would agree that he's a guy who lives with a baseline sense of peace. Peace. He doesn't seem to get caught up in all of the reactivity of the day. He seems to be able to be differentiated enough from his family, from his friends, from his enemies to be able to live with a clarity that I would suspect that most of us, at least me, are trying to look for and trying to live. And so that's the setup. That's where we get And we talked about hope last week and what Jesus has done for us and that the work of Jesus on the cross should give us hope in the present to be able to endure because of what he's done and because he's what what he's going to do. And as we talk about peace, we see something very similar in who he is and what he has done. And so that's where we're at. That's what's gone wrong. And so how do we, what's the secret to peace? And then finally, what are the practices of peace? Because uh, in the end, I, it would be my argument if we had more time, I do think God gives us peace. Like we pray for peace and that God gives supernatural peace. I believe that fullheartedly. but I also believe that he is, his intention is to make us people of peace and that that takes time and that takes failing and that takes being with Jesus because ultimately we ought to be a non-anxious presence in the world that is filled with a constant anxiety. That our goal, that our hope is to actually be a people of peace in this world. And I think that's what Jesus is after. And so let's talk about the secret of peace from Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 28 says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, there's a couple things going on here. Um, two things in particular. Jesus, um, from an agrarian perspective, is talking about yokes, which is not something in our modern day vernacular we talk about. But there's kind of two ideas to this. Um, most of, both of them you'll most likely be familiar if you spent time around church. Um, the first idea of a yoke is that uh, it would have been very common to talk about this because a yoke would have been another way of talking about someone's teaching. Their teaching is is their yoke. And so you would know someone by their yoke, by their teaching. Whether they were heavy-handed, whether they were um, huge on the law, whether they were liberal, whether they, whatever category, you would know them by their yoke. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus says, his invitation is, come learn of me what my yoke is. And his yoke really can be found in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 5 through 7 on his teaching. But the other idea is this idea that we're probably most more familiar with is two oxen being yoked together. You've heard this illustration before? Two oxen being yoked together, and it's usually the scenario where it's for training of a younger ox. And so they fit the young ox in this yoke. It's uncomfortable, it's awkward, it's a little bit heavy, but the majority of all the weight is put on the more experienced ox. They're the one that's going to lead it. They're the one that's going to guide. They're the one that knows where to go. And they're the one willing to bear the heavier burden so that this oxen can start to get used to what it feels like to be in this yoke. And Jesus is telling us that his yoke, his, uh, his teaching, is a lifestyle for us. Dallas Willard uh, says it like this, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while catch this, living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy that's bound to fail. When you read through the Gospels and you start to see Jesus's life and how different it is from his contemporaries, from the religious leaders, from, the, from his enemies. It is a vastly different lifestyle. His pace is different. What he uh, deems as success is different. What he sees as valuable is different. And so uh, ultimately what, um, uh, what Dallas Willard is getting at here is we can't just expect to just do the things and not follow the life of Jesus and yet expect the results of Jesus. And life in a fallen world is challenging, to be sure, as we've discussed um, already. This world is filled with anxiety, with stress. And so to counter that, what would we say, or to contrast it, rather, if the yoke of Jesus is this, what's the yoke of the world? And for the sake of time, I would probably define the yoke of the world primarily as a way to escape, distraction and escape you think about what the messages that you see on tv that you see on social media whatever the case may be what they're after for you is primarily distraction and escape of your life to be able to get some peace and rest from anxiety and i would argue that's a lot of the reasons why we see uh, so much addiction and so much zoning out, you have uh, addictions that come uh, in the form of sex and porn, of binge-watching shows, of eating, of dieting, of traveling, of working out, of drinking, of social media, and on and on and on and on we could go, that when these are good things that get turned into something that is trying to be more than it was ever designed to be, becomes something that we try to escape our lives that, if we're honest, works for a little bit, and then we ultimately have to return to the reality of our lives, and so our world doesn't necessarily give us the tools to be able to deal with reality the way that it is and to be able to find a hope and a peace that is deeper and more meaningful than we can see around us. Uh, Frederick J. Bruner says it like this Jesus realizes the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that, G- that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers us new equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his yoke will develop us in a way with balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. So Jesus' invitation to us is new equipment for how to go about our lives. You're looking for peace, you're looking for meaning, you're looking for purpose, you're looking for value, you're looking for rest. Our world has no shortage of options to be able to give you. They just tend to all focus on getting you out of your life to be able to feel it. And what's unique about Christianity, what's unique about the Bible, is that it is so focused on realism and the reality. Life is hard. Life is anxiety-inducing. Life does come with a ton of challenges. And to be able to endure those and to actually be able to thrive in those, you and I need equipment to be able to do that. And so let's talk about, real quick, um, four practices, and three truths to remember. This would be kind of the way I'll I'll start to end in terms of how do we live in the yoke of Jesus? How do we put this uh, new equipment on? I'll give you four, uh, four practices, and then three truths. Um, The practices are primarily kind of um, thought through for this particular time of season. Um, Four practices. Number one practice uh, that I'll give is to practice silence and stillness practice silence and stillness. Um, Our world is incredibly noisy, incredibly noisy. Social media, people, work, emails, texts, um, Marco Polos, that's a thing, right? I don't know, I hear it a lot. Um, But there's just, there's a thousand different ways to be able to communicate. There's a thousand different ways for people to try to get your attention. And so one of the ways that we form ourselves to Jesus is by stopping and sitting with him in silence and stillness, allowing ourselves to slow down. N.T. Wright says it um, this way, that we have to slow down our lives to be able to catch up to God. See, the great difference in Western Christianity is that God is not in a rush like you and I are. He's in no hurry. When you read the Gospels, look at the pace of Jesus. How he walks, how he Sabbaths, how he just looks at things in the world and says, Oh, look at the lilies of the field, look at this, look at that. Look at the pace of Jesus. He's deliberate, he's relational, he's slow. He often gets away, he withdraws from people to go pray and to go be in silence and to go spend time with the Father. Look at the pace that Jesus lives relative to the pace that a lot of us live. And silence and stillness is the the place where we go and sit and say, God, we just want to be with you. That's it. Not necessarily looking for anything, not trying to get all these situations fixed, but I want to slow down and sit and breathe and be in your presence. You see that all through the life of Jesus, that he withdraws from the crowds, that he does ministry and serves, and then he gets away, that he does all night prayer meetings, that he's he's away and he's slow. And so one of the ways we combat the way that the world is trying to form us is to go against that by sitting and silence, and stillness, and learning to enjoy Jesus. So number one, practice silence and stillness. Number two, limit your exposure to the 24-7 news cycle and social media. Our news cycle, our 24-7 news cycle, is designed to keep us in a state of anxiety. It's designed to keep us wound up. I don't know if you—I I did this a couple years ago. I was watching a local—one of the news stations, um, and just watched for a bit to see how many times it said in the bottom ticker, breaking news— and every time it came back from a commercial, it was breaking news. Like every 45 seconds, something else was going on in the world that was uh, horrible that I needed to know about. And that, that's the life we live in. Our news, our social media, all of this is constantly coming at us to either create or keep us in a state of anxiety or to show us about how our life is not as cool or impressive or great as everybody else's is. And so limit your exposure to 24-7 news cycle, to social media. Uh, Thomas Krattenmaker says this. He wrote a great book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. He says, also feeling our anxiety is the glut of information flying at us. It is good to be well-informed, but not when there is too much information of the anxiety-inducing kind. The tsunami of news and updates from our computers, phones, and TVs blasts our consciousness with threats, worries, conflicts, and tale after tale of people doing and saying awful things. When we stay in that, that's a way that is forming us. It's forming our minds, it's forming our emotions, it's forming our thoughts. And so the way of Jesus is to be able to get away from that, to be centered on things that are more important. Uh, Number three, listen to your body. Just really practical one. When it comes to anxiety, when it comes to stress, when it comes to all those things, our body, Pete Scazzaro says, our body is often a major prophet and not a minor prophet. And so if you stop long enough, you, start to, you can start to feel it in your shoulders and in a clenched jaw and in always having balled up fists and having a knot in your stomach. That is a way that God has wired our bodies to tell us, hey, there's a check engine light on hey, there's something off here. And so we shouldn't neglect our our own bodies that God has given us to begin to give us signals that, hey, you're you're too far out over here. You need to slow down or you need to consider what's going on here. Pray and reflect here. And so I'd encourage you, especially in this season as you slow down, as you spend time with Jesus, uh, is to listen to your bodies. Uh, Number four, is to name your anxieties in prayer, and, in prayer and in community. Name your anxieties in prayer and community. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Um, in, in all the psychological literature, it will say that naming your anxieties, naming your stresses, naming those things that are, are very challenging end up removing a lot of the power of them. And even more so when you do that in community of people that are safe, that you trust, and that you love, who can be there to support you and to walk through life with you. One of the beautiful things about Christian community that Jesus has set up is this idea that we can walk with people through the messiest situations of life who are going to remind us of who we are, of who God has created us to be, and and are going to point us to a hope that helps us find peace and endure whatever it is that we're going through right now. And so this community actually creates the scenario where we can be honest and vulnerable about this is what's going on in life. And I want to walk together through this. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be honest about here's where I am. Here's what's going on so that we can go through this life together. The great myth of social media and all those things is that we can have a thousand friends online and that's deep community. And I think that experiment has, has failed us 12 to 15 years into it. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' life seen in the Gospels is his dedication and his commitment to deep friendships, to walk through the struggles, the highs, and the lows of life. So four quick practices. Practice silence and stillness, limiting exposure to our news cycle, to social media, listening to our body, naming anxieties and prayer and community, and I'll end with this. Here's three truths to remember. I do find that in in seasons that are particularly stressful and more anxious that I don't know about you, but I tend to get more forgetful about the things that are really true. Uh, Because my mind and all my emotions are focused on either this one thing or this series of things, and it takes up all of me. And so it's incredibly challenging to lift my heart above that, to lift my eyes above that, to lift my mind above that, to remember things that are actually true beyond just what the circumstances I'm dealing with. And so I want to just end with three truths to remember. Number one, know that Jesus knows what it's like to be you and I. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. The uniqueness of Christianity relative to all other world religions is that our God knows exactly what it's like to sit and be a human knows exactly what it's like. In fact, uh, British essayist uh, Dorothy Sayers says this, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restoration, or, um, restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horror of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace and he thought it was well worth it. We have a God that understands the challenge of being a human being. And if you've ever gone through grief and you've ever gone through grief with someone who has gone through significant amounts of it, whether trauma or grief or whatever, have you ever experienced how those people tend to be more patient, more kind, more gentle, more loving? It's because they know what it's like. Versus there's experiences that all of us have had of trying to go through things with people who might not and they're just trying to read the book and tell you the answer and tell you how you should be beyond this or past this or feel this. But when you sit with someone who has experienced the hardship of life, there tends to be a patience and a grace because they know it's not linear. It's hard. It takes time. And so you and I have a God who understands that deeply. Family issues, rejection, pain, job, whatever it is that Jesus understands it and is empathetic. Secondly, Jesus has not left us alone. Jesus says this in John 14, verse 25 through 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. And so do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The other unique part of Christianity, the amazing part of Christianity is you and I in this room are not alone. We have community around us, but God has seen fit to send us the Holy Spirit to fill us with peace and with hope and with grace. And so despite the fact that during um, extremely challenging times of grief and stress and anxiety, we typically, we tend to feel alone The great truth to remember is that irrespective of the situation that you and I find ourselves in, we are never alone. That he's given us peace through the power of his Holy Spirit. And lastly, he will return again to bring ultimate peace. What we celebrate right now is the first Advent, where Jesus comes in the form of a baby to live the life that we couldn't live, to ultimately die the death that we should die, and then to rise from the dead. But that's the first Advent, and we're waiting for the second Advent. The second Advent is not when he comes in the form of a baby, but when he comes in the way to redeem and fix all things. That's what we look to. And we see it most beautifully, I think, in the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for all the former things have passed away. We live in a space and time now that is marked by sin, that is marked by death, that is marked by pain, that is marked by anxiety, and yet we've been given a way to be able to experience God's kingdom in this life by taking on the yoke of Jesus and living the way he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're still going to deal with doubt and depression and anxiety and hard times regardless. And as we continue to learn of that yoke, that tends to change over the course of time, but it's still going to be here as long as you and I are alive. But the hope that we have that is powerful enough to turn into peace today is that he's going to fix everything that happened after Genesis 1 and 2. You remember at the beginning, we had peace with God, peace peace with ourselves, peace with the world, and all of that blew up as Satan came in and Adam and Eve believed the lie from him. When you read in Revelation 21, it sounds a lot like what it was like before then. But we've experienced it now. So the promise of Revelation 21 is that he's going to wipe away every tear, there's going to be no more sin, there's going to be no more sickness, there's going to be no more death, there's going to be no more pain, there's going to be no more insecurity, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more war, no more on and on and on and on. That's our hope. And we get to get a little bit of a taste of it here on earth. And not only do we get to get a taste of it, but we get to be people to give out that to the rest of the world. That you and I have something so powerful in the here and now and in the future that it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we experience life. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of his resurrection, because of the yoke of his teaching, it changes the here and now. Doesn't change the circumstances often. It doesn't change what we go through, but by his spirit and by the work that he has done, it gives us a chance to experience peace and rest and a light yoke and an easy burden. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. As we close out, I want to encourage you, if this is if if you're if you're in this room and, and have those feelings of this season of life being heavy and being a burden and dealing with anxiety, dealing with stress, I want to invite you to come up as we continue to worship as a way to say, Jesus, based on your invitation of come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I want to come. I want your peace. I want your rest. I want to learn from you. I want your light yoke and your easy burden that is given to me. And so as we continue to sing and respond to that work, to the hope that we have, I want to encourage you that that's available to you and I today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Father, that um, in a world that has a heavy yoke and a heavy burden, that you, God, offer us a light yoke and an easy burden. And you give us an opportunity to come to find rest for our souls, to find peace. And so, Jesus, I do pray for anyone in here today who is feeling the weight of that, who is feeling the burden of life, that, God, you would give them your peace, that you would give them your yoke and your light burden. And help us, Jesus, to slow down, to remember that, to reflect on that, to believe that deep down into our bones, and that would change the way we live our lives. And that people would see that there's a peace, there's a groundedness, there's a a, a, a part of who we are that is hard to explain. And it's ultimately because, Jesus, the work that you have done to transform us into becoming people of peace. So we thank you that we have hope that one day there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more death and that we will see you again face to face and be your people. Until then, God, give us hope, give us peace to live life to the fullest. We love you, and it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.